recorded live. Good morning. This is 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and thethinkbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. I am Douglas Bowles, and if you found us by way of Red Ice Radio, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. Today, on the second day of July, we are all going on the record, subliminally, to prove that love is greater than empires. And this will be broadcast this morning on Radio Free Albemuth. Uh, hi there. Will Morgan here. And today on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with John Allen Simon and Elizabeth Carr about their film, Radio Free Albemuth. Since mid-May... Oh, hi, guys. Well, since mid-May, this writer, director, producer team has been speaking or are seeking funds to bring the film to audience by staging a Kickstarter campaign. Their drive has been successful. They have met their goal, and they will be funded. Congratulations, guys. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, quite an experience to do a Kickstarter, I'll tell you that. Was it stressful at all, I wonder? <laughs> it's extre- it's extremely it's extremely stressful because uh with Kickstarter it's all or nothing which means until you've hit your goal it could be that you get nothing because all the pledges would get canceled if you hit your target de- target time your deadline and if you aren't 100% funded but El- Elizabeth really has been the one spearheading the Kickstarter so uh I I should really let her talk about it but I can talk about my own stress from it <laughs> well, we we should note the film can reach more audiences with um, funds beyond the original goal, and so the drive continues through to tomorrow. Yes, the drive never stops. I mean, we this is a finished film, unlike many things on Kickstarter. Radio Free Album is, is done, completely done, great review and variety. We've played festivals. We've been invited to special screenings like the Science Fiction Hall of Fame and uh, the Worldcon in Reno, which we won the film festival there and showed at the end of the Hugo Awards. So it's a finished movie, but these funds are for us to be able to get it into theaters in uh, at least 10 cities uh, and to promote it for VOD and uh, DVD, VOD being video on demand for people who hate acronyms like me. <laughs> this, this film is... you. I've heard it mentioned many, many times that it's been called a labor of love. Could you, just for our listeners, give us an evolution of the process from, you know, the moment you have the idea? And then, because I know many of my colleagues have been waiting and excited for this film for quite a while. Could you just tell us the whole history of the of the whole uh, project? Is this still 42 well, only, hours or 42 minutes? Yes, only if you had 42 <laughs> days, I was going to say. But the uh, the quick answer is that uh, in, in college I started reading Philip K. Dick, and I loved his material, and I always knew that uh, there were uh, stories of his that I was very interested in uh, turning into films when I got into film. I would really studied writing and uh, English literature and uh, modern European literature at Harvard, and then... In grad school, I kind of started reviewing movies uh, when Roger Ebert would go on vacation. I I filled in for him on an occasion and uh, had a column syndicated through the Midwest. And uh, uh, a partner and I, Chip Rosenblum, uh, optioned uh, three of the novels. Uh, We optioned uh, Radio Free Albemuth, and we optioned Vallis, and we optioned Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. 
The reason we optioned Vallis, really it was kind of a package deal with Radio Free Albemuth. The, the, it took two years, actually, to negotiate the deal because the estate was, uh, had really not been settled. Philip K. Dick died uh, in 1982, right before Blade Runner came out, uh, actually right before it was finished. And uh, he had, uh, had five wives and three children, all by different wives, and no will when he died. So it was a little bit complicated uh, for them, uh, mostly, but a little bit for us because we were trying to negotiate with them. And uh, eventually we did get the rights, and I wrote a screenplay first for Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and we were lucky enough to have that option by a major studio for uh, a very nice sum of money, and then they paid me a very nice sum of money to do a rewrite. And uh, with that money, we were actually able to buy the rights to all three novels. Uh, we didn't get Flow My Tears made on that occasion. It's been set up as a big-budget project at di with different companies and different studios, with different actors and directors attached. It was never something I was going to direct. But I always knew that I wanted to direct Radio Free Albemuth. So when I wrote the script, I wrote it to be kind of a modestly budgeted movie, which the, I think the story lends itself to. And then uh, my partnership really encouraged me in that pursuit that I would direct it. And uh, a mere 10 years later, uh, we got it made. Yeah, and, but so from my recollection, it was, it was completed in 2010. No, the movie was not completed in 2010. We showed it as a work in progress uh, while we were refining it and working on special effects at a few festivals. And uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, some sources that track movies like IMDb track them from the first time they're screened rather than from when they're released. So actually, we didn't, uh, we didn't totally finish... Well, we... We finished the movie in the version that Variety reviewed uh, right about the time of about a year ago when we showed at Sci-Fi London for the second time. We showed as a work in progress, and then last year we showed uh, the completed film. But, you know, in the digital age, nothing is really ever finished. <laughs> Just like on the Internet, nothing ever goes away. Nothing is ever finished till we release the film. Uh, I'll probably still be doing a little bit of tinkering. We'll definitely be changing the end credits because uh, uh, we've added new backers who we have to thank, and we've added some additional producers in this process who we're going to have to credit. Some of the perks right. on Kickstarter were for an associate producer or co-executive producer credit, and uh, a couple of them have gone and a couple are left in the last 30 hours of the uh, Kickstarter. Yeah, and that's what, uh, when you congratulated us on being funded, and we said thank you, and um, I still, there's a part of me that wants to really wait until 11.01 tomorrow, Wednesday morning, Pacific Standard Time, when it's officially over, because it's so, it's, it's so nail-biting. But yeah, we did exceed our goal a couple of days ago, but there are there is about 30 hours left, and there are so many cool rewards left for people who like Philip K. Dick and science fiction and independent film. And like John said, uh, there are, is an associate and a co-executive producer credit to go along with the other producers who among them have Oscar noms and nominations and Sundance winners. 
And uh, special thanks on screen credits for that's been a hugely popular reward at a at the hundred dollar level where they get on screen special thanks and then the limited edition DVD, a whole package of things. I had a lot of fun created. Well, I'm not sure if I should say fun, but but I did. You know, creating rewards that I thought would appeal rewards that I thought would appeal to people on Kickstarter. So. And one thing I should stress is that uh, just as we made this movie independently at a fraction of the cost that studios uh, uh, spend producing movies, we're going to be releasing the movie at a tiny, tiny fraction of the cost that a studio spends. I mean, a studio spends upwards of $100 million in marketing and advertising to release a film. And even uh, on an indie film that uh, Fox Searchlight or Focus Features or the Weinstein Brothers pick up, they spend uh, two to three million dollars. And we're spending, we're raising on Kickstarter uh, eighty-five thousand dollars to release the movie. So uh, just as the uh, making of the movie was a labor of love, which equals we didn't take any money, we didn't pay ourselves, and we paid. Uh, almost nobody else either. That's the definition of a labor of love. The distribution of the movie will also be that kind of labor of love where uh, people are working uh, because they want to see the movie get out there. We showed at Lincoln Center in New York. We were invited to screen there a couple of weeks ago as part of their prestigious Indie Night series. And the uh, terrific producer, Christine Vashon, who produced uh, One Hour Photo and Boys Don't Cry and Velvet Goldmine, and Far From Heaven, probably 30, 40 terrific independent features. She was, uh, she was the curator of the series and did the Q&A with us and began by saying how much she loves the, this movie. Uh, so it's very encouraging that it will find that indie audience out there. One of the reasons we made it at this kind of efficient budget that we did was so that it could play uh, in, in special cinemas, the kind where you know, you're not doing television marketing, you're doing some newspaper, but mostly promotion and publicity, and uh, you're, you're showing on one screen, really, in each, uh, in each city that you're playing. With these Kickstarter funds, we'll definitely be playing L.A. and New York, because those are key cities, and uh, then we'll be seeing what, what other cities we, we play in. I, I'm sure we'll play in Boston and San Francisco, uh, towns that are great for movies, and the others, it'll depend which ones want us and uh, which ones right. seem right for the film. Right. Well, it, I, it, go ahead. I'm, sorry, I'm in Denver. You've got to get it out here. I'm excited. This feels like a Mother Goose movie or something. <laughs> well, Mother Goose, yes. Uh, Mother Goose, of course, uh, one of my plans for the movie, if we, if we do Valis, would be that the movie that uh, uh, the characters are watching at the beginning of Valis, I would love for it to be Radio Free Albumus. For those who don't, <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, uh, Philip K. Dick had these mystical experiences in 1974 that he spent the rest of his life trying to understand. He heard voices and saw visions and saw a pink beam. And uh, Radio Free Albemuth was the first novel that he wrote in which he tried to put into uh, his fiction uh, what these experiences uh, were about and meant to him. And uh, he made himself a character in it. Philip K. Dick is one of the main characters, but it's his best friend, a record store clerk in Berkeley named Nick Brady. 
He's the one having the visions and hearing the voices and seeing the pink beam. And his friend Philip K. Dick is the one who's skeptical and wonders if he's crazy, wonders uh, you know, if he was on drugs, wonders all these things about what's going on. So it's, it's, really, a fun, uh, it's really a fun story. And then in Vallis, uh, what had happened was, is a subject of a little bit of uh, controversy in uh, Philip K. Dick's circles. He submitted the novel uh, of Radio Free Album to his publishers. At that point, it had a title of Vallis System A, Vallis is what he called the entity that he felt was communicating with him. It stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. And uh, uh, whether it was an alien or whether it was God or whether it was a hoax or whether he was going crazy, these, these were his preoccupations for the last 10 years of his life. He wrote a million-word journal, which he called The Exegesis, which was just published uh, a year ago, uh, to great interest, which is a really deep, mystical, philosophical uh, work in which he tries to examine the question of how do we know what we know, what can we know, can man really know the nature of God or reality itself. At any rate, after he wrote this novel, which is, which is quite spiritual for science fiction, uh, there was a new editor at his publisher who kind of freaked out that Philip K. Dick was getting religious. He was already a really well-regarded science fiction author at that point. Rolling Stone had done that big article on him uh, saying he was the greatest science fiction mind on any planet, and John Lennon had already (laughs) called him about optioning three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Uh, And, uh, of course, this was before Blade Runner was made from one of his novels or any of the movies were made. But his publisher freaked out that he was kind of getting religion and sent the novel back to him with notes and he didn't, he didn't uh, take the notes, so to speak, to change the novel. He gave the manuscript to a friend uh, a few years later, but he did go back and write an entirely different novel in which Vallis is still a factor. But as I say, kind of a little bit of uh, the story of Radio Free Albemuth is the movie that the characters are watching at the beginning, or could be the movie that they're watching at the beginning. And... Uh, it's even more religious. It's even more spiritual. But this one was published by his novelist, as Vallis, uh, by his publisher, uh, as Vallis, and is regarded as one of his masterpieces. And uh, he crossed out the title Vallis System A on the, this, on the manuscript and penciled in Radio Free Albemuth and gave it to his uh, novelist friend, Tim Powers, uh, who later gave it to Paul Williams, who is his literary executor. And, uh, you know, my hunch is uh, a lot of people feel like, well, Radio Free Album was just a rough draft of Vallis. Of Vallis. Uh, but I, to me as a writer, that this process doesn't suggest that. I kind of think he would have called Vallis Vallis System B, because the exegesis is all about all these different explanations for the experience. And uh, he wrote two more novels. Uh, that were connected to the Vallis experience, one called The Divine Invasion and and his last novel, Transmigration of Timothy Archer. So I think there's no reason to believe that a, a, a novel he was completely satisfied with at the time he turned it into his publisher and gave it to a friend for safekeeping, saying this is going to be worth a lot of money someday, uh, was not something that uh, was just a rough draft. I, I think it's one of his best science fiction novels, uh, because it really combines the spiritual aspect 
with science fiction in a really satisfying story. The, uh, the Vallis novels, Vallis, uh, Divine Invasion, and Trans- Transmigration of Timothy Archer, are really not traditional science fiction at all, none, none of the three of them, in my view. So, Divine uh, Invasion he, comes close. Divine Invasion comes rather close, but even it's a little bit outside. Well, of the it's box. very influenced by the Kabbalah, and uh, it's a story that you know is kind of almost a an allegory, uh, you know, of the Second Coming in uh, in the future, uh, and it's quite fun. I'm, I really enjoy it, but um, it, it's it's not it's not very realistic. I think you'd have to agree with me. In terms of uh, in terms of the plot and the settings and what goes up, like all of Philip K. Dick, it's well worth reading. Though I think it's uh, it's a bit of an acquired taste. I wouldn't start can, with if, it. If we go back and compare Radio Free Albemuth to Ballas, it seems that I mean both have their dark aspects, but Radio Free Albemuth is a little bit darker than Ballas, and that has led to some people in our community having theories on why you guys were having problems getting this movie distributed. Is there any blocks that you guys have found in, in trying to market this movie at all? Well, the, pro- the, the problem for us is that we made a movie that I think 10 years ago we would have been in a bidding war from the different indie companies that were out there actively acquiring product. But since about 2008... Uh, you know, what happened to the music business has happened to the film business, which is that uh, all of the old paradigms uh, for companies kind of carefully handling movies and the audience for indie films, it's kind of disappeared, you know, just like uh, groups like Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails now, you know, try to release their movies digitally to start and on their own labels, you know, self-release. Um you know, I like to say that movies are easier than ever to get made because you can make them for almost nothing with the new digital technology. I mean, you can't necessarily make them well, but you can make them. And uh, But they're harder than ever to get distributed because the distribution costs have remained really high. Something like Paranormal Activity, which is a good example of that, uh, which was made for, you know... a a couple of hundred thousand. I think they really exaggerate how little it was made for, uh, from what I understand. But that's still very inexpensive. You know, they did spend millions and millions of dollars on the marketing. And you can imagine what a uh, what a uh, 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 leap in the dark it is for an executive at a company, somebody somebody getting a paycheck, to say, let's spend three or four million dollars in marketing on a movie that cost under a hundred thousand. By the way, our movie did not cost under 100000 Let me Let me hasten to add that it was considerably more expensive than that. But there are, uh, but there are, um, there, there, what is happening in the film business is that the market for all the kind of middle-budget movies, things between uh, like a uh, uh, million dollars and uh, $30 million, the, the, you know, the way that companies know how to market those movies has disappeared. So I think with a movie that's, uh, look, our movie is political, philosophical, it's funny, it's science fiction, it's a conspiracy thriller, uh, it uh, takes place against the background of the music business in Los Angeles in 1985, so there's music in it. Guys who, who work for these companies who are releasing one or two movies a month, you know, sometimes more, 
they just scratch their heads and go, wow, we don't know how to market this. We may think it's really good, but uh, reviewers don't even mean what they used to mean. Uh, we were just talking with uh, the heads of, uh, of Focus Features and a couple of the other major uh, indie releasing companies uh, at a panel discussion at the Writers Guild on Saturday, and they were all saying, you know, review, reviews don't even matter anymore for indie movies. It's a very tough marketplace out there, and uh, uh, we wanted – I started in distribution, so I understand this stuff pretty well. I distributed the original version of The Wicker Man and Dennis Hopper's Out of the Blue, and those were both movies that nobody wanted to touch. They didn't know how to market them, and I marketed them successfully. Uh, but I have to say it's a very time-consuming labor of love process to market those kinds of movies. Uh, in order to really maximize the audience. And these companies have too much overhead, and there are too many movies on their plate for them to do it. So that's why we're going to do it ourselves. Too much, too much love and effort have gone into this movie to just throw it out there onto DVD or VOD and not give it a chance to find its audience. Right, and I should, and we, I mean, we did have quite a few offers, but none of them made sense for the movie we made at the budget we made for what they were planning on doing it. Their, what their version of doing the theatrical distribution of what John and I and, and Stephen and Chip and the other producers are doing, you know, is average on they charge back to the filmmakers around five hundred dollars to $700,000. And we thought we could do it being really clever and frugal for about, you know, somewhere between around 150000 When we raised the money on Kickstarter, we knew that it would be roughly half of what we would need, and we were prepared to match the other half. So yeah, we'll find, we'll find the other half now that we've got this, even if it's coming out of our own pockets. But, you know, the, uh, the other way that movies are getting out there is these companies, uh, these smaller companies. Look, if you don't get into Sundance and get the big offer uh, the way uh, uh, one or two movies a year do – you're kind of stuck now uh, because the smaller companies will give you hardly any advance at all on the movie. They'll spend hardly anything. They'll spend uh, you know, not enough to give the movie a chance for anyone to be aware of it and then go very quickly to VOD where they know there's a little bit of money and they can make a profit if they don't spend anything releasing the movie. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, like if... Uh, Baseball team said, well, if we get enough singles, we'll score runs. And that, that's great for them because they're making maybe $100,000 uh, on each movie they distribute this way, but it doesn't allow producers to get enough back to cover the production costs. So we wanted to do something very responsible to our investors and very responsible to the movie that people worked on uh, for no fees and... Uh, in the case of the actors, people like Alanis Morissette and Shea Wiggum and uh, John Tenney, who's in it. Everybody worked at scale, uh, Screen Actors Guild scale, minimum salary, which is uh, very low. Uh, none of the producers took any fee. Chip Rosenblum and I didn't even recoup the cost of the novel, the film rights, out of the budget. Uh, so we, you know, we, we think worked, having worked this hard and done something that... Uh, Variety, which is not an easy review, go read their review of Superman, for example, uh, they raved about. They called it an engrossing, uh, you know, terrific adaptation, 
succeeds as a uh, 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 as a conspiracy thriller and a study of enlightenment. Uh, they couldn't have given us a better review if we'd written it ourselves, and I swear we uh, I swear we didn't. Uh, yeah, that so was we're, we're, to so we're in we're encouraged that this is a movie that uh, uh, an audience will like and will surprise the people who are uh, who are the traditional wisdom. Variety said uh, uh, should connect strongly with Dick's fan base and and attract upscale audiences seeking science fiction with political and philosophical substance. Consistently consistently absorbing. Narrative delivers satisfying intrigue and suspense, operates successfully as a study of enlightenment and a straight-ahead conspiracy thriller. I mean, I think Philip K. Dick, in writing this story, you know, it's very much in a way like Orwell's 1984 and The Manchurian Candidate. It's dark in a sense that, uh, like V for Vendetta is dark. And, you know, the studios were very, very wary of that movie, and it found a huge audience. If we get one-tenth the number of people who saw V for Vendetta to come see Radio Free Albumus, we will have hit a home run, and we'll be very excited by that. Well, can and we the talk? Plan is, yes. Well, I just wanted to say that one of our plans is to make it an event in each city that we play in, either with, I don't know if you guys have checked out our Kickstarter yet or our backers yet. You still have 30 hours. But there's a role-playing game that's a bonus that every backer gets called Left Coast that Steve Hickey, a game designer, created an addition for Radio Free Albemuth where people take on the role of this rather paranoid science fiction writer and the different characters in his life as it's spinning out of control. And along with panels on Philip K. Dick, we really want to make it almost like it's a festival in each city. That's the plan. Yeah, we want it to be an immersive event. We want you to get that paranoid Philip K. Dick experience. I mean, one of the things we may do is we may have uh, we may have people lurking around uh, who you don't know if they're part of the experience or uh, they're part of the uh, part of the landscape. You know, there's a there's a very important uh, uh, homeless man in the novel Radio Free Album. He may be he may be showing up uh, in or around some of these events. You know, we want you to not quite know. We want you to not quite know what's going on from the minute you decide to go see Radio Free Albumus. We want you to have that uh, Dickian sense of dislocation. I I don't know if we'll be able to pull off everything we want to do, but with you know a little more funding on Kickstarter, we can begin to think bigger. That's the that's the main point. Is that we're going to use these release funds to try to create a real experience for the Philip K. Dick fans and the audiences who come see this movie. And at the same time, kind of create an infrastructure so that these kinds of movies, there's an audience for them. We'll be, we'll be I think, picking up other movies, ones that we didn't make, ones that we've seen at festivals that are terrific, that are in the same boat we're in, uh, that the, the companies don't want to, Spend, don't know how to imaginatively market films that you know just aren't like scary uh, torture horror movies. Anything with any intellectual substance or anything that's a little different, the way the original Wicker Man was different. Warner Brothers shelved that movie before I picked it up and uh, designed a campaign and took Christopher Lee from city to city. And uh, we, 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 we turned it into an indie hit. And we, we think we can do that with other movies 
and we're get, we have to start with Radio Free Albemuth because it's our movie. Elizabeth, not, not only are you the producer of of or one of the producers of the film, you also were an actor, correct? And in that, you portrayed Nick's wife, Rachel. No, uh, Nick's wife, Rachel, is Catherine Winnick, a wonderful actress who's currently. Uh, one of the leads in Vikings, the hit series that's on the History Channel. I played in a flashback scene uh, Nick's mother. Matt Lesher and I are the parents, and uh, Maxwell, Maxwell Perry Cotton plays the young version of Nick. And that will be, well, or maybe I shouldn't say any more than that. John, should I? Well, or? if you're a backer, you can actually watch that scene on Kickstarter. Uh, it's it's uh, it it didn't survive the process of the uh, of the of the uh, going through the movie, but the story of that is on Kickstarter. And if you back at any level, uh, you can actually watch that scene and see Elizabeth. Um, you know, this is a movie that uh, we could have made it into a miniseries. I think very easily. We had a lot of footage, and nobody told me how to cut the movie. One of the great privileges of this experience was that. I really got to make exactly the movie I wanted to see. And watching it with audiences at some of these festivals where we uh, screened as an in-work a work in progress uh, really gave me a sense that uh, how audiences were responding to it. And uh, I realized that if I changed the rhythm a little bit, I actually, between the time we first showed it uh, in Sedona in 2010 and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, late last year, that um, I made about 150 small cuts. I added about 10 minutes of music to the movie. I changed the pace. It, it tightened the movie by about, uh, by about 10 minutes. And uh, it, it just made all the difference in the world. I think audiences, you know, guys like us who love Philip K. Dick, we loved the movie at its longer length. And, uh, and those people like us still love it. Uh, but a lot of people who were, you know, just liking it, they like it a lot more now. So we've, we've, we've brought in a lot more audience with some of these changes. And, and I don't think we've sacrificed anything of the substance of the movie. But that one no. scene that Elizabeth is in did get, did get sacrificed. <laughs> so it shows what, what a good sport she is, as well as a good producer. <laughs> Yeah, how 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 ignominious is that? That you're one of the producers and your scene is on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great scene. There's nothing wrong with that scene. But you know, you've got to kill your uh, you got to kill your babies sometimes babies. as a as a as a writer or as a filmmaker. And uh, I think it was Francis Coppola who said, "You never finish a movie; you just abandon it." And uh, <laughs> they'll they'll be probably prying it out of my hands as we open in New York. Uh, you know, there aren't going to be any substantial changes, but uh, it won't change in length uh, because that would mean going back into the sound mix, which is a really uh, horrible experience when you have to go back into the sound mix. And uh, But, you know, uh, there could be a few little tiny things in color timing and some things like that, things most people wouldn't notice. But when you've got to watch, I always say to people, you better make the best movie you can because you're going to be watching it a couple of thousand times. And if, if it isn't, if, if you don't like it, it's like hell. And believe me, nobody likes their movie every day. It's like marriage. 
You know, you may love your wife or your husband, but you don't love them every day. <laughs> so and every show, minute of every day. Our show here uses synchronicity kind of as a lens to interact with reality. And Philip K. Dick was one of these people that really, really went deep into that idea of intuition. And you see it in this story um, where um, when Vallis communicates to Nick Brady to move to Southern California, he does, and Philip K. Dick follows him. And so recently we talked to Rodney Asher, the director of Room 237, and he said The Shining is this machine that generates synchronicity. And when he started working on his project, the synchronicities just started coming out of the woodworks for him. We're curious whether or not, you know, in touching something so, you know, thinky as Philip K. Dick, you know, what kind of experiences did you guys have with synchronicity? Well, I've got to say that uh, there's been just a lot of amazing, uh, you could call them coincidences or synchronicities, but about, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, I got a phone call from an agent saying, you guys have the rights to Vallis. There's a, uh, there's a couple of directors we have top music video directors who want to uh, who want to be involved with it. Will you go meet with them? And I said sure. And uh, you know he told me they were uh, uh, Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, who had done a lot of REM stuff, and they'd done uh, the Smashing Pumpkins uh, videos around uh, uh, melancholy. And uh, uh, but the meeting never happened. We never met. They never were available, and it didn't happen. And then uh, 10 years later, I ran into them after they'd done Little Miss Sunshine. And it was just about the time that I was deciding that, you know, we, were, we, we found a private investor and we're thinking of making the movie. And I said to them uh, what had happened. They go, well, Billy Corgan loves Vallis from Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> and he wanted to finance the movie. He had a deal with MTV. And then the MTV deal ran out, so we never got involved. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. I'm about to make Radio Free Album with the companion piece. I said, do you have any advice for me as a first-time director? And he said, absolutely. Uh, go take a class with this woman named Joan Shekel. She was our directing coach, and she's, she's kind of uh, a secret in L.A., uh, and uh, uh, she's terrific. And by synchronicity, I was working with this, uh, with this director, uh, Mark Romanic, who had done One Hour Photo, we were working on a new version of Flow My Tears. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I studied with her. So I went to go see Joan, and I took this class with her uh, with, with uh, about 10 other people, and uh, very intense. And part of it was channeling, channeling the spirit of your movie. And I really think that that was one of the most valuable aspects of it, with this, was this kind of channeling uh, exercise that we did and i i channeled philip k dick for it and i really felt that uh i i'm not i'm not a religious person in the conventional sense at all but i really felt like his spirit pervaded this movie and among the kind of interesting synchronicities is that philip k dick and i share the same birthday of december 16th um, oh, we were wow. both born in chicago and Alfred C. Clark has the same birthday. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, really? I didn't realize that. But then well, that's weird the guy, because of your movie, your movie, uh, The Haunting of Julia. Yeah. Which has yeah. the actor who played David Bowman and Mia Farrell actually. See, you are Mother Goose. 
See that? <laughs> well, wait, there's more. It, there's more. Well, so then to make it even more person. synchronous, even more of a, 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 a Jungian synchronicity, uh, the guy I cast after a lot of back and forth and a lot of debate with my uh, associates, uh, Jonathan Scarf, to play Nick Brady, December 16th. And John Tenney, oh. from The Closer, who's now star of Maxwell and King, who's a very King close and friend. Uh, King and Maxwell, sorry. Uh, who's a very close friend who agreed to play one of the FBI agents for a, a walk-on part. And who, who if, if the schedule had worked out, might have played uh, one of the bigger parts in the movie. Uh, also December 16th. So we got a lot of December 16th people in this movie, uh, which is really interesting. And then... Um, you know, Elizabeth can talk a little bit about we 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 uh, you know it was a very tough shoot for an indie movie. We had uh, I really made it tough for myself. We had over thirty locations and over thirty speaking parts and a twenty four day shooting schedule. And um, uh, during our shooting, there were some really bad fires in the uh, Los Angeles, uh, L.A. County area, and uh, we lost our location permits. But in almost every case, we came up with someplace better for where we were going to shoot. And then um, in the, this really beautiful scene at the end, which takes place in this kind of uh, interesting park area near L.A. Uh, uh, that's been turned into an internment camp, uh, the, the, the quality of the air during this fire period in L.A. was just beautiful. It was just... Uh, just has the, like an almost unearthly right. quality to it. And we use some of the shots from that throughout the movie very in appropriate places. So, so we had a lot, of, uh, a lot of luck and synchronicity. Can you think of any others, Elizabeth? Well, in, in some ways you're meeting with Adonis because, uh, you know, stars and celebrity actors who have, you know, their, their managers and their agents and, you know, 10 or 12 people that they have to sign off before they do a movie. Usually that's what you need to go through. But uh, Alanis Morissette had read the script and liked it, and Fern Castle, who was our casting director, set up a meeting between John and Alanis to just have a meet. You know, not, not an audition, just, just a meet. Four or five hours later, they came back from that meeting, and Alanis had said she would do it. That never, ever, ever happens. You know, just the two of them, they just clicked. And John had always seen uh, the part of Sylvia as a sort of slacker Joan of Arc. And John, who knows, has, well, who knows music about as well as anybody I know who isn't a musician, he has about 3,000 CDs and whatnot, really wasn't familiar with Alanis Morissette's music because pop isn't really his genre. Well, when I was a, I was a music critic for the New Orleans Times-Picayune and a contributing editor to Downbeat and occasionally wrote for Rolling Stone, but I always championed bands no one ever heard of. So, you know, I was the guy writing about Nick Drake, you know, 20 years ago. So, uh, uh, you know, or about U2 before anyone heard of them. But... Um, you know, Alanis kind of was a star right from her first album. So I kind of, you know, I knew the singles, but I hadn't paid much attention to her music. And uh, so it, I just it, looked at her as, part a, of as her, a person. Well, so in our in our world, we look at not only like there's 
actors are typecast, but we also see archetype cast where they bring some sort of energetic signature to all their roles and then you can um, compose a composite character. And the fact that Alanis also played God in Dogma Amnesic God. She was. She was. She had amnesia. Remember, she was a an amnesic God. Right. So has, Which is very Dicky, and of course. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know. I kind of. I'd seen Dogma, and uh, you know, another synchronicity was that uh, you know she was in that with Alan Rickman, and Alan right. Rickman is a very close friend of Elizabeth, and uh, I had always wanted Robin Hitchcock great singer-songwriter to, uh, you know, contribute music to the movie and maybe even work on the score. And uh, I had kind of uh, stalked him, truthfully be told, to a uh, music store. Not quite stalking because it was open to the public. But I went to this <laughs> music store. I, I, I went to, you know, great inconvenience to go hear him play in a record store. And uh, afterwards I went up to him and I said, you know, are you a Philip K. Dick fan? Because I said, because I thought his music is really the equivalent of Philip K. Dick. And uh, he looked at me kind of witheringly and said, I read literature. I don't read science fiction. And I thought, well, never in a million years is this going to happen. But we were out to dinner with Alan Rickman. And uh, I had kind of uh, said to Elizabeth, oh, you know, what, you know, Robin Hitchcock's playing uh, in Los Angeles at the small club. I really want to go see him. I made reservations. She goes, well, you know, Alan isn't going to want to go. And I said, well, look, let's have dinner. Let's see how long it goes. He's only in town every once in a while. But, you know, maybe he'll, maybe it'll interest him. So we're having dinner, and, and I said, uh, uh, it's getting late, you know, but, w- you know, I guess we're not going to go make it to this club. We're going to have you come see this guy with us that I think is incredible. He goes, who's that? I said, Robin Hitchcock. He goes, he's one of my best friends. So when we finished the movie, we didn't go see him that night. Or actually, we did. We went, for, we went at midnight for like the last, you know, the jam show that he did with guys from R.E.M. and uh, Grantley Phillips. Uh, but Alan went, Alan very uh, intelligently went back to his hotel. But when we finished the movie, Alan uh, introduced us to Alan Rickman, I mean to Robin Hitchcock again. He watched the rough cut. He loved the movie. And uh, he ended up doing some work on the score, but even uh, more significantly, giving us nine songs for the movie. And I'm just a huge Robin Hitchcock fan. So uh, in addition to an original song by uh, Alanis Morissette that she performs in the movie, because as I said, the background is the music business. uh, You know, we've got this great Robin Hitchcock uh, contribution to it. And our great composer, Ralph Grierson, who another synchronicity, a guy who rolfs me, uh, said, I mentioned you're do, you, know, you were doing a Philip K. Dick movie to this great musician, this great pianist I know. Who, and he said, well, I'm, I'm starting to compose now. I'd love to talk to him. So I said, okay, I'll talk to the guy. And, and Ralph Grierson just turned out to be one of the greatest collaborators on this movie. He's done thousands of studio sessions playing on uh, John Williams' E.T., and playing piano for Randy Newman, in fact, on albums, uh, which tells you how good he is. But he was playing at the Hollywood Bowl, tripped on a chord, playing, he was playing with John Williams, tripped on a, a cable backstage, shattered his wrist, and gave up playing as a sessions player uh, and, and turned his hand to composing just around this time uh, that we were doing the movie. 
So uh, he did, you know, he's classically trained, uh, brilliant uh, compositional mind, and uh, he and I worked really closely on the score. Uh, we used some of Robin's contributions, but Ralph really uh, helped me uh, fine-tune it. You know, Robin was in England, so there was a limit to how much we could collaborate, and he he doesn't own his own studio. Ralph had his own studio, and uh, we were able to really make the music a real character in it. Uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is that Variety says the the score is the gem in the uh, a first-class uh, technical package, meaning that all the technical values of the movie they think are terrific, but the score stands out as being amazing. And one of the perks, tell them what it's going to be, Elizabeth. Well, yeah, how about this? Um, we've blown through our 42 minutes, and so we oh, have we to have? say, okay. We, it's okay. I wanted to just say thank you, congratulations. I, uh, we're so eager to see the movie, and then congratulations on uh, you know the reviews and the the successful Kickstarter. And then if there's anything, you know, you'd like to say in closing, you know, take as much time as you like. Okay. Because nobody's going to hear it. No, everyone's oh, hearing no. it. We just, we just <laughs> the rules today. Well, let me say, let me say in the 30 hours left of our Kickstarter, there are two rewards that people who are really into music should look at closely and press that pledge button. One is a two-hour session, one-on-one with Ralph Grierson, the composer, pianist that we've just been singing his praises. At his studio. At his studio. Um, And if you're out of town and can't get to L.A., then you could do it by Skype. But Ralph is amazing. So that's one of the rewards. And the other one is the Aramcheck Secret Summit, which is a private party at Ralph Grierson's house with the cast and crew and surprise guests including Stuart Ham, who's this incredible bassist guitarist who 30 years ago did an album called Radio Free Albumoose. and he, Which is how a lot of found, people first heard of the novel. Right, and we found oh. through Kickstarter, he came to know about our movie. We've gotten together. He and John hit it off. He's coming to the party to play. He's one of our backers. He's given us 30 of his vintage CDs that he'll autograph as, as rewards. So... Those are two things. There's still room for people to come to the party and the composer sessions with Ralph Grierson, which I'm shocked weren't amongst the first to go. There's, there's three left. So some lucky person can have Come them. to the party. Everyone to the party. Come to the party. <laughs> yes, yes. President at the party. Family. And we should, add, we should add, you know, the, there's a group in L.A. called the Good Listeners who uh, are, are on KCRW, which is kind of the hip NPR station. And they... Uh, they uh, found their way to us while we were making the movie, and they and I uh, spent a sleepless night coming up with the Let's Party song that uh, that uh, is very prominent in the movie. And that's a that's a great. It turns out to be a great song. There've been there've literally been months when I can't get it out of my head. It's such an infectious. <laughs> it's such an infectious song. Not quite as bad as It's a Small World in terms of because it's a good song. But uh, it is one of those songs that can get stuck in your head. And they did a, a great uh, pop version of uh, Let's Party that, uh, for those of you who I don't want to give any spoilers, it's very important. Philip K. Dick, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't an English professor. He was a self-educated guy. And he wanted to be a mainstream novelist. He wrote uh, a half dozen uh, mainstream novels before he gave up 
uh, mainstream novels and turned to science fiction, which he had loved as a kid, which was kind of a happy coincidence. But the, but the mainstream novels are, are actually uh, quite terrific. And uh, for Philip K. Dick, uh, it wasn't an academic intellectual exercise to write. He wrote because he thought the word had the power to change the world. And when he wrote in the 60s and 70s, music was part of that, uh, that optimism, part of that belief that you could change the world with music. When Bob Dylan or the Beatles or the Stones made an album, it, it really was like a, uh, a shockwave going through the culture. And people changed the way they looked. They changed the way they thought. Uh, it really affected people. And Dick was up there at the same time as the Jefferson Airplane, who were kind of a revolutionary rock band. They were kind of the band, the, the popular band of the revolution. And uh, uh, so for Philip K. Dick, music had the power to change the world, and his novels, he felt, had the power to change the world. And we think in our own small way, this movie, Radio Free Albemuth, is a message of hope about what individuals can do you know, it couldn't, the synchronicity that you mentioned, it's a big debate right now about uh, national security and privacy. And uh, Radio Free Albemuth, which he wrote in 1974, uh, takes place in an alternate United States in which a, uh, a president is still in power in his fifth term, chasing after a shadowy terrorist organization that may or may not exist and eroding civil liberties with spying and surveillance and police break-ins to try to get information on people. And uh, that's what it's about, folks. So if you want to see a movie that's really about something from a prophet, a guy who really saw the future, even saw his own death, actually, if you read his letters, um, mm. that's what Philip K. Dick was. And this was his most personal, prophetic, and I think controversial novel because he really asks the big questions. I call it a spiritual movie for agnostics. I think even Richard Dawkins would like this movie because uh, what Philip K. Dick comes to an understanding or tries to ask questions about in terms of God and in terms of higher purpose, you know, it's supposed to make sense. Uh, you know, even if you arrive at belief, which Philip K. Dick did, and in many ways this movie is also about a journey of belief, uh, I think it's got, to, uh, it's got to engage us entirely. So he felt that art had the power to change our lives, and I think so too, or I wouldn't have spent 10 years of mine making this movie and making so many other people suffer along with me, like Elizabeth Carr and producers <laughs> Chip Rosenblum and Stephen Nemeth and our composer Ralph Grierson, our uh, editor Phil Norden, Paul Petchek, who did additional editing, our DP Patrice Cochet, and uh, John Felix, who worked on the movie with us. Another little happy synchronicity, a guy named John Felix working on the movie, for those of you sure. who know Philip and Nick very well. <laughs> Thank right. you. You've been listening to Elizabeth Carr and John Allen Simon on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. More, uh, more information about this film can be found at RadioFreeAlbumist.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com slash 42 Minutes. If you like what you Kickstarter, hear... Kickstarter, like Kickstarter, Kickstarter. <laughs> 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 you guys have a great Tuesday. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank Our you. Our pleasure.
You bet. Good luck. I can't wait to see the film. Oh, good. Well, thank you. This was a great interview. Sorry, I know we talked a lot, but uh, you guys were good listeners. It was perfect. <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.